Hello, we're back with another episode of the Recovery Friends podcast. Um, real quick about the podcast, we are um, podcast people come on who used to have drug and alcohol problems, uh, issues, uh, un, unable to stop, um, and for some reason or the other today they're living sober uh, relatively successful lives and they come on here and they tell their experience and tell their stories and hope that maybe somebody out there can hear this and um, maybe get a little bit of hope that they can change you know and um, you know we don't we're not any 12-step program or treatment centers or anything like that we're just uh, trying to uh, you know share our story so that hopefully that can that can happen uh, we don't speak for any 12-step programs or what we say is our own opinion and our own experience. Uh, so with that said, uh, tonight um, I've got a friend of mine. His name is Preston, and he is new to New Orleans um, and has a, a, you know, so far what I've heard of your story seems uh, interesting. Uh, so... I figured um, it'd be it'd be nice to have you on the podcast and and hear what you had to say. Um, so if um, you want to just uh, jump right in, uh, start from wherever you want to start. Tell me tell me a little bit of your past and and how you got to where you're at. Sure. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, with my story, I am kind of a good example i guess that alcoholism or addiction don't always um have to be determined by your surroundings i guess um you know i didn't i didn't know anyone in my family or have any friends or anything that struggled with alcoholism or addiction it was a completely foreign concept to me um i was a big rule follower you know nothing was particularly wrong or anything um before i got started with alcohol and drugs but i had a really fast uh downhill progression Uh, the first time i drank was three days before i turned 16 and then by 17 it was iv drug use and i went to treatment five times from 17 to 19 um, and just couldn't couldn't really get it, but really wanted to get sober and, and struggled for a while. Did, um, did you have any addiction in your family? None that I was aware of um, after I started struggling with it. I mean, my parents kind of talked about some, like, really extended family <laughs> that was just, you know. But That's like, for me, like, I, like, I, I would ask my mom uh, if there was anybody in the family who had any addiction problems. And when she said, oh, yeah, your great-grandfather, like, for, in some weird way, that felt validated. Like, okay, yeah. cool. I'm not faking. This is <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this I know. Is I, I felt the same way when I found that out. Um, but, yeah, so the, the very first time I drank, um, I remember it very clearly. And it definitely did something for me. Um, but I, you know... When when I was trying to get sober, I can remember like going to lots of speaker meetings and hearing people talk. And a common thread I I would always hear is people would say like, "Ever since I can remember, I felt different." Mm. 
you know, which was, I mean, that was definitely true for me. I felt that, but I kind of feel like, especially since I've been sober and kind of like if, have cared to talk to other people more. <laughs> I kind of feel like that's like the human condition, you know, like mm. even the most well-adjusted seeming people that just seems to be like how everybody feels. So I don't necessarily know that that's why I drank or used per se or anything, but uh, I mean, um, first time I drank it definitely fixed some of that or did something for me. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, lived in a pretty strict house and I wanted to go to this birthday party late at night this one night. Um, this girl was having a birthday party. I asked if I could go and my dad said, you can only be there 30 minutes and then your best friend has to come and pick you up. Um, and like neither of us could drive. So it was him and his dad. I arranged for all this to be done <laughs> and was going to be at this party for 30 minutes. And <laughs> everybody's drinking at this party so i think i think i'm gonna have my first beer tonight and within that 30 minutes i ended up having eight beers and a bunch of jello shots and it was like i was uh i remember the thought going through my head it's like i'm watching myself be stupid and there's nothing i can do about it like uh -huh. it was this totally weird experience where i right off the bat i couldn't control it but i loved it too you know it it definitely, um, I felt like I was in my own little world and just wanted to do that as often as possible. Um, as soon as I tried it and a friend picked me up and I barfed all night at his house <laughs> and just did, did it as much as I could from that point on. Oh. So, um, as I moved forward, I ended up getting this job at a sandwich shop when I was, uh, when I turned 16 and the general manager there was raging alcoholic and so I took a liking to him and neither I have two older brothers and neither of them struggle with drinking or using or anything so he kind of felt like my older brother that understood that yeah <laughs> um so really quickly that work environment became like an unhealthy and unrealistic work environment and you know we kind of hired on people that were also like us and <laughs> it just was ridiculous after a while um and alcohol just kind of opened the floodgates to everything for me i was open to trying anything and everything i could get my hands on mm. at that point and that's kind of what age 16 looked like um alcohol was always a constant staple and um, you know, really early on, right off the bat, it was apparent to me that I was different from other people. You know, I was always the last person awake when I was in big groups of people, you know, and still wanted to keep going and keep hmm. doing more. Um, I can remember things like being at my best friend's house and laying on the floor outside of his room and hearing like a group of people in his room whispering about how I have no control and I'm going to die <laughs> and stuff like that. And just, I mean, pretty quickly already feeling alienated and not necessarily having fun or like partying with, with the drinking and using. So um, like everybody around you saw it yeah. early on. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so yeah, I, I can remember 
stuff like that and and already feeling miserable pretty quickly uh so alcohol was always a staple and then i just with that i used everything i could get my hands on but was kind of constantly switching from thing to thing and then at age 17 was when i started uh the iv use and Mm. um you know i was all super into elliot smith and like (laughs) started going down that road and was like, Oh, I want to do heroin. And, uh, you know, ended up like just finding out how to get that and how to do it or whatever. And and And, that was my thing. And did you say where this was at? Like what? what, what, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Texas is where, where I grew up. Austin, Texas. Okay. Um, so it's in Austin. There's a big heroin scene there. I guess so, yeah. I mean, yeah. as much as anywhere else <laughs> these days. It's just crazy. Like, you know, like I always, I never s- thought heroin was so prevalent, but I think yeah. heroin has gotten more prevalent in the last, like, 15, 20 years. Well, yeah, it definitely, I mean, I think even in the past, like, it definitely wasn't something, I I had to work really hard to like find it and it's not like it was like people I was around were doing it. Like wow. I, I went out with the intent to find it and then after I got sober a bunch of people I like grew up with ended up like getting caught up with it and mm. it, I think recently it's become a lot more You were ahead of your time. Well <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you could say that. Um but yeah, it it, it certainly seems a lot more prevalent in a lot of areas and then there's all the fentanyl stuff going on and everything um but yeah so that became my staple thing and then uh my parents took a long time to become suspicious of me because i'd always been such a rule follower that um it took a lot to make them suspicious and i think even when they started to be suspicious they didn't want to be and kind of avoided the subject and eventually they they were under the suspicion that I'd been smoking pot and they give me a 12 panel drug test but they're thinking that's what I'm going to pop up for and I end up failing all the panels and Mm -hmm. it's this big like uh uh-oh moment and I have to spill the beans and um I knew I wasn't going to be able to talk my way out of that every panel yeah dude you could (laughs) You could have got away, gotten away with just saying it was a faulty uh, test <laughs> because that makes, that almost makes more sense. Well, I guess <laughs> I could have just said that, but I didn't. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see a way to talk my way out of it at the time and just said, I think I need help and told them what was going on. And so they ended up sending me to a... Uh, treatment center around that area and that was kind of my first exposure to Mm -hmm. treatment for addiction and and what that looked like uh so i get there and my first treatment experience was an adolescent program and so since i was like just barely young enough to be in the adolescent program i was one of the oldest ones there and so a lot of my experience there was younger people being like, what's heroin to feel like? (laughs) (laughs) And things like that. But, you know, it was also my introduction to, um, 
some recovery ideas and some treatment ideas. Uh, and I, I went to a treatment a total of five times in my story. Um, and these were all based around 12 step ideas or, or that was the, the explanation of the foundation. Um, and, and so, you know, I know there's, I knew there was a lot that goes into that stuff and, and some books and all kinds of stuff, but you know, I was just kind of like, well, if this is the foundation of this place, then I can just assume that whatever anyone says within here is under the umbrella of that realm. Um, Um, yeah. So this was kind of my first introduction to a lot of ideas that didn't, didn't really work for me. Um, you know, I heard things like just play the tape all the way through, like, now that you're separated from the drugs and the alcohol, if you want to be sober and you just think about what's probably going to happen if mm. you touch it again, just do that and you'll be okay. So I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I heard things like meeting makers make it. So I started to operate under this idea that recovery is about just going to a bunch of meetings. Um, I heard like, you know, things as simple as you can't get drunk if you don't take the first drink or, you know, can't. you don't pick up. <laughs> right. I never understood that one until I I was like, don't pick up. I don't understand what that means. But I guess they're saying if you don't actually grab it, you won't drink it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I was pretty sure that that had crossed my mind before, but I thought maybe I just didn't have enough oomph behind it. Yeah. And this time it'll it'll work out. So that was kind of, that was my idea of what recovery looked like. And I would, I mean, you know, I wanted help and it was nice being around some like hopeful and wishful thinking and positivity and stuff. And so I'd kind of go with it, but deep down I was a bit concerned and felt like that probably wasn't going to pan out that well. Um, and I would, I just had like these mental battles every time I'd be in treatment. I kind of, I could feel myself like spiraling down inwardly. And I, I early on in that stay kind of knew what was going to happen as soon as I got out. Mm. But I was 17, you know, and was still totally dependent on my parents and in school and stuff. And so. To me, it made the most sense to make it look like I was doing really great and not um, let on that I was still struggling, and then I would have the maximum leverage to manipulate my parents when I got out. So yeah. that's kind of what I did, and I got really good at that, at, at playing the treatment game. Um, so after 45 days there, I got picked up by my family. You know, it was their first experience with anything like that. They had no idea what to expect. Um, they probably thought done deal. Yeah. It's fixed. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they, they thought it would be fine after that. Um, so I left and of course the first thing I do when I get back is celebrate by drinking with some friends. And then shortly afterwards I'm back to doing, the thing I'd prefer to be doing, um, and things start going downhill again. Um, car accidents were a big thing for me. <laughs> I'd go unconscious a lot mm. at the wheel and, um, like total cars or 
got speeding tickets when I was dope sick or whatever, and you know they they would usually play into some crossroads where I'd kind of get backed into a corner because of some consequences. So, you know, I remember some things like that happening, whatever, a car accident, some, some tickets and, um, signs that I'm obviously not doing well and I kind of get backed into a corner again and need to go to treatment. I was never one to voluntarily check myself into treatment. I'd always have to just go until the wheels fell off. But as soon as I would, I had to go to treatment, once I got there, I was willing to, I wanted to do anything I could to get sober because what I was doing wasn't working and I was, I was miserable. Um, so I get to another place, um, you know, I'm kind of around the same ideas again. Recovery still looks the same way as it did before. I, I was kind of getting the same ideas to try and I can remember I don't remember a whole lot of what I did in the program, but I remember things just like most of what I would do is sit with other people in a room that were struggling with the same thing as me, and I'd just kind of talk about what I was struggling with and vent about stuff, which felt really good for the period of time that I would do it. But I would notice like shortly after whatever group or meeting I would do that in, mm -hmm. I was kind of stuck with the same problem again. Yeah. And I just didn't know how to escape that. I didn't know how to escape this constant bombardment of thoughts. Like I need to, you know, use or however it presented itself in me. Um, and, and there were some people I would notice in treatment that didn't necessarily struggle with that. You know, just something really bad happened and then, like, it made sense to them. I should never touch that stuff again, and they didn't. And mm -hmm. then I'd notice some other people who would kind of struggle the same way I did and and went up and down and would go in and out of treatment. Um, but I, I just didn't have the facts to, like, understand all that stuff yet. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, uh, about a, I can remember getting on Suboxone while I was in there and thinking, you know, this is the ticket, it takes away all my physical ailments and I feel completely normal and like I can do this now. Uh, and then they took me off it <laughs> and I got really upset and I'm like, why'd y'all do that? And I didn't feel good anymore and I wouldn't get put back on it. So I gave up yeah. internally again and was like, best thing to do is going to be Pretend I'm doing good. So Suboxone does make you feel good. It did. Yeah. Even after a while of taking it? Well, it didn't. That's the thing. It, to me, it felt like I was sober because I didn't, it didn't make me feel high. Like it, it just took away my withdrawal symptoms. But what about like once withdrawal symptoms are gone and you're still taking it? Right. Like that, that, cause I never was on it. Mm -hmm. So like my, my idea is like. Well, if I'm still on it and, and I don't get the urge, because a lot of people say, well, it's not like you're high. It's just you just don't want to use. Well, they must do something for me mm -hmm. if, it, if I don't want to use. You know, like, if, it, if, it, if I don't feel like you're restless, irritable, and discontent on that, right. then it must do something. It must make me feel good to some degree. I, it's just it, I don't understand it. it, it um, 
I think it delayed the mental bombardment of addiction mm. because it didn't it didn't work forever for me because a little later in my story I get put on it for a little longer. Mm. Okay. Um and and that's what I noticed it did. Like I I didn't feel anything physical. Like I didn't feel high, but it would kind of block out that part of my mind. Um yeah. but eventually it, it came back even with that. Um, but of course, uh, when I got off it, I didn't have anything like delaying that and just kind of thought mm. I'm screwed. And, and as soon as I got out of that place, I got talked into sober living and I didn't want to cause I knew I was going to use as soon as I got out. And that's what I did. I can remember calling someone and like crying because mm. I didn't want to use, but that's what I did. And they were just like, dude, why do you keep doing this? And, <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I didn't know. I didn't have an answer. Yeah. That's what happened. Um, I made good friends with everyone in the house and tried to play it off as long as I could uh, until eventually it was, uh, I was kind of outed and I left the house. Things went downhill some more and I end up, getting talked to by my family again and so I'm like okay this time I'll go to treatment but this time I'm going to be kept on Suboxone so I found a doctor who would do that um, and I go to treatment and you know they're asking me about cravings while I'm there which I kind of like understand a little differently today but you know basically they were just asking me how my mind, what, like how often I was thinking about using, which was like constantly. <laughs> so, you know, they'd keep upping the dosage until I was, you know, at a significantly high dosage. And I was like, okay, this is the sweet spot. And so I good. thought, this is, this is it. I'm not thinking about it anymore. Um, so I, I, I stayed on that and then I meet this girl in treatment and I'm like, all right, that's a plus. And then... <laughs> Long story short, she moves in with me after treatment. Week later, my apartment's been robbed, and there's this crazy letter on my bed oh. <laughs> about um, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so, needless to say, Suboxone wasn't really cutting it anymore, and I was like, okay, I'm going to get back to doing what I'd rather be doing. So this was, um, you, and you, your girl was responsible for this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not for me going back to doing no, what I was doing. No, for the doing, robbery. But, but for the robbery, okay. yes. Um, so, yeah, things go downhill again some more. Um, and eventually, things get bad enough, I go to treatment a fourth time. Um, so, when I get to this treatment, like, I can't imagine... I remember hearing, like, about people hitting rock bottom or this idea of rock bottom a lot in treatment. So I, I always thought like eventually something bad enough is going to happen or I'm just going to feel bad enough to stop. Solid floor. No more, no lower. Right. And <laughs> this to me like had to be rock bottom. I could not imagine I like, I go to this detox facility for like eight days. I hardly even remember that. And then I go to the treatment center and I catch a like 
cold on top of detoxing and just the muscle aches, the bone aches, mm. the restless legs, like people like jump every time they touch my hands because I feel like a dead person mm. and like all that stuff. Just physically, it's the worst I've ever felt. My consequences have piled up on top of me. So I'm like, I'm, I'm mean business this time. So I made this like resolution that I was going to have one-on-ones with every single person that worked there. And I did. Um, I started this meditation group with people while I was there and had these big like, you know, emotional upheavals and powerful experiences and like strong friendships. I, uh, you know, I, I knew I needed to like go to tons of meetings when I got out and resolve to do that and like actually stay in touch with people from treatment. Um, you know, I made these lists of how I was going to have fun and not get bored in recovery mm-hmm. so that I'd always be occupied. All good things. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they were all good things. Yeah. Um, I made lists of things I should probably avoid. Um, so I just felt like this is it, you know, Mm. this is going to be the one because I am not capable of mustering up any more desire than I have. Uh, and it was like the, the best experience I ever had in my life. I loved it. And I got out. Uh, but I mean, in retrospect, I can still kind of see the untreated out. Mm-hmm. addiction at play because yeah. i i remember towards the end of it w- one of my buddies had gotten out gone to a sober living house and i had been in touch with him he's like man this house is great like it just opened so you know i'm the only one here there's pretty much like no structure you can do <laughs> whatever you want and i'm like well that sounds great because you know even though i really want to be sober i'm kind of skeptical of myself because i've messed up a lot right yeah. so even if I mess up, I'll still have a place to live, but I want to be sober. Yeah. So <laughs> I get to this house and I do good for, I mean, it's the longest I ever made it out of treatment, but for whatever reason. How well, long was it? I almost, I made it to almost three months sober. So like almost two months outside mm-hmm. of treatment. But for whatever reason, sometimes it's it was right when I got out. Sometimes it was like, a month later, mm-hmm. but something would come back into my mind in some way. You know, sometimes it was like I would think I can just do $20 worth. Sometimes it would be, well, this was never really my problem, so I could do this. Sometimes, you know, it wouldn't even manifest as drinking or using sometimes i get obsessed with why i need to leave treatment early or something and that's Mm. how it would start out but somehow my mind would always lead me back to using even though it was was the last thing i wanted to do and and this time was particularly like troubling to me because uh I mean, like I said, I'd done better for longer than I ever had. And then I was starting to move some of my stuff over to, to my sober house. Um, so a bunch of my stuff was in storage. So I go get it and I find this old Suboxone prescription. And I'm like, maybe I should take this with me because it'd be better <laughs> to do this than the alternative if I had a Just bad day. Yeah. So then I'm like, nah. 
and I dump him down the toilet. Then I'm moving some more stuff, and I find uh, another one in like a dresser drawer, and I take it home with me and hold on to it for a while, and it bothers me, and then I flush it. <laughs> and then I've got this coat on, and I'm going the pocket of the coat, and there's another one. And I just remember this night sitting there in the house with with one of the pills in front of me, and I just start crying because I'm like, like I don't even want to do this. I have zero justification for doing it. Like I, everything is fine. I'm, I have friends. Like I'm, I've got a job and I'm making payments on things again. My family's starting to trust me a little bit again. Like everything is perfectly fine, and yet I can't get my mind off of this. Um, and I end up flushing it, and then like the next day, I'm just on autopilot and go to the Walgreens and get the paraphernalia I need. I call the person I need to call and I'm mm. on the way to get dope and I'm thinking I don't have to do it. I can turn the car around. I can throw it out the window. It's like there's another person in my <laughs> body and everything in me is screaming not to do it and I can't not do it, which sounds ridiculous to yeah. anybody that's never experienced that, but... It's like you told yourself, like, I'll, I'll probably just end up throwing it away, but let's just go get it. Yeah, let's just go get it, and let's... I'll let's, flush it. I'll, I'll make it. I just want to, like, smell it, you know, or whatever. Um, and then, as soon as I did it, I'm thinking, well, maybe this is a good thing. You know, I can see where I've been slacking off here and there. And I told my housemate, thinking, you know, the accountability would help, and I could just stop. And I was like, well, I mean, since I've done it today, I might as well do it tomorrow. And, you know, just kept going. And people saw me nodding off. And, you know, one day I'm, like, deep cleaning the kitchen at 2 in the morning. And people corner me, and I get all defensive. So I just, I leave. And uh, my family comes back later. Um well, shortly after that, I, I go to jail. I, I total, like, my fourth car, and um, I end up in jail. And it was, like, the first time I'd really gotten some significant legal consequences. Uh, when I get out, my family stages this intervention on me, and I was real rude. Um, told them to leave, and then life just wasn't sustainable the way it was going anymore. And then I was like, all right, whatever, I'll go to treatment again. So <laughs> it was, it was the fifth time in treatment. So fifth time charm, right? Fifth time is the charm. All right. Well, good. Well, tell you what, let's take a quick break. Uh, we're going to grab some water, wet our beaks real quick. Uh, maybe use the bathroom. And then when we return, which is like in a split second, <laughs> because there's like no br actual break in the recording uh we'll hear uh your journey in sobriety sounds good okay so we're back from break um so at this point you were at your fifth treatment center um struggling in and out can't stop can't figure it out flushing stuff all the time right <laughs> <laughs> 
that's that's funny though like how yeah. you're just like staring at it. and then you flushed it i thought you were gonna use it yeah you know which is uh crazy most times <laughs> i did but there were some you know there were that one sticks out enough to tell the story because yeah. i didn't <laughs> but yeah. um yeah so i'm going to my fifth treatment and uh i was uh, there i i still had some i guess reason to believe maybe something good could happen but i was really cynical and skeptical mm. and and kind of pissed like i just didn't understand why all these things worked for some people and just like what what was wrong with me i couldn't get it um and i was like tired of like freaking people out all the time and like calling people all out of my mind and tell them how tomorrow everything's going to be different but whatever here i am again in treatment and and i remember when i got there there was something really different even in the atmosphere of this place and mm -hmm. i i didn't know what that was about but i just felt you know a level of of safety um and when I got there... So this is a new treatment center. Never been to this one before. Right. Okay. All of them were different, okay. uh, but they were all with a um, apparently 12-step foundation. Yeah. Um, and, and so I remember when I got to this place, you know, couldn't sleep, of course, and was just up and, and thinking some more and was just thinking like how hard I tried in the last place and was trying to think, okay, well, you tried hard, but what are some things that you still have, have never done? You know, and, and up to this point, like the steps to me, the 12 steps were, you know, I'd seen them all over the place and I would just kind of have this reaction where I would look up at them hanging on a wall somewhere and I'd just kind of be like, all right, step one, you know, powerless. Okay, yeah, sure, I'm in treatment, so obviously. All right, let's move forward, two and three. Okay, I'm cool with the idea of, a, of some kind of power. Four, I can do that in my head. Five, I talk about my problems all the time. <laughs> Six and seven, all right. Eight and nine, I'll say sorry to people. 10, 11, I'll try that out. And 12, at some point, I'll just be able to help someone. And I felt like as long as I like those things sounded okay to me, yeah. I was doing that stuff. And so at this, to this point, you, ne or at least the, the message had never like sunken in or you never right. received it, that, that you have to work them or, or to work them with somebody or to like, like the idea, that idea never registered. Right. I I had it and I'm, you know, I'm not sure how much of it was just that I, like, I just couldn't hear it or how much of it was the way it was presented but I mean, I've legitimately, that's still how I thought of it. And I'd even had a few sponsors up to this point, um, oh. through that stuff. Uh, like, and my idea of, of someone sponsoring you in recovery was like a, a person that just tells me, call me if you feel like getting high. I mean, that was my experience. And I struggled with that because I was like, but every time I want to get high, like I'm, I get high and then I'm like crying on the bathroom floor and I call you and, <laughs> and then it's not very helpful at that point. Um, and I, j I wanted to get to a point where I wasn't feeling like getting high, you know? Uh, but 
whatever. So I, I remember there being some like things that I was supposed to read that would, that all that stuff was based on that, that might give me a better understanding of it. And I remember hearing about these specific pages and stuff that I, I had never read, but I'd always known about. Hmm. So that was like the first thing I did that night. I read all the way through this text that that stuff had been founded on and it was blowing my mind like it was directly describing my experience like especially the mental stuff like all these ways all these different forms of insanity where it's like I know exactly what's going to happen like I'm not dumb I know what's going to happen if I do it again but I just can't not do it mm-hmm. um and I related to that a lot um you know, and I, I I had done a lot of other exercises, like trying to find some event or some thing that turned me into an alcoholic or an addict or something, but insanity hmm. made the most sense to me. It was like, you know, I really, I can't even explain it to myself. That makes complete sense that yeah. just this one little sliver of my life, I'm insane. Yeah. Um. So I was really fascinated by that. And that came through relating. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not thinking, okay, am I an alcoholic? Okay, I'm an alcoholic. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was there was some information to, yeah. to process about what alcoholism and addiction was. And I didn't even realize that until this point. Like up to that point, I thought, alcoholism was or addiction was someone who drank or used heavily mm. you know but but my experience it showed me that wasn't really the case because i had these friends i knew who i mean some of them had worse habits than i did for a while uh but then as soon as something bad happened it's like i'm done you know yeah. they just need to go get separated from it um so so yeah i start realizing that and then I start meeting these people there who are talking about um, getting to this point where you're working with other people or or trying to help someone else recover really fast, like faster than I'd ever heard anyone talk about doing that. Uh, Up to this point, I'd always heard people saying, you can't do that till you have a year sober. And so uh, I was like, well, great. Like Mm -hmm. I can just kind of like go to meetings and just kind of hang out and get comfortable and get to know people and nothing will really be expected of me until I'm comfortable. Yeah. Which really the day I was comfortable was never going to even happen, but it was comforting to know that (laughs) maybe it was in the future, you know, and I could just chill. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, usually within a month I would find myself in some deep trouble. Um, so it kind of gave me some hope because I was about to be really bummed out if I was going to be exposed to the exact same ideas that had always failed me in the past. I would, I would try and believe that it would work differently, but I knew deep down it wasn't going to. And this gave me this hope. Maybe there's this other type of recovery I'm completely oblivious to. Um, so I, I just met some people who seemed to be really, uh, really be able to explain this physical and mental component of alcoholism and addiction. And um, they seem to have like these 
concrete floor mats for every step of the way. Um, and they were, they had a much more hopeful vision of sobriety too. You know, all sobriety up to this point to me had always been described as an everyday battle. I mean, I remember hearing that phrase a bunch that it's an everyday struggle and everyday battle basically that I'd be fighting tooth and nail to be sober. I'd have to avoid a whole bunch of stuff. And there was all this stuff I had to do that like other people didn't have to do. And it just sounded like a huge bummer. (laughs) And it was just like, and when I felt horrible enough, I'd try that for a little bit. But after a while, the automatic reaction is just, what is the point? of being sober if I'm miserable every single day trying to do it. Like, I'd rather just be dead or get high again. And that's what I would do, you know. Um, But these people were talking about, like, not even thinking about it. Um, Not, like, it just wasn't an issue anymore. They didn't have to try not to think about it. Um, They didn't have to avoid anything. They could do whatever Um, and that was appealing to me, you know, that sounded like worth putting some effort into. Um, and so, you know, that kind of sold me and I put both feet in and like did everything I could do again at this place. I asked for an extension, you know, I, um, was willing to go with any and every suggestion I got along the way. And the whole time I knew I'm going to have to get to the point where I'm working with others quickly this time. Um, so in the middle of this process, you know, I um, think another big eye-opening experience for me was was taking inventory of my life up to this point and the, the resentments and fears and relationships I had. And I think I had it tendency to view myself as like this really nice guy with a drug problem and like you know low self-esteem and Mm. and this kind of thing but I don't know I kind of ended up realizing I was really uh inwardly arrogant and and had these really crazy expectations about Mm. life and the people around me and unfair expectations that I didn't even live up to but I'd put them on others um this is never had you done inventory before i had done a really different form of it a format where i didn't really see it in the same way you know where i just kind of check some boxes but this was like my first thorough experience with it um it's pretty pretty powerful i think it was really powerful yeah it was probably one of the biggest like elements of my change because you you can't see the world the same way anymore after you do it (laughs) ever yeah like i'd never have been able to enjoy self-pity again since that day yeah like there's always at least a vague awareness (laughs) that you're like not healthy right now (laughs) or that like the way you see it is probably wrong right yeah that it's it's probably definitely wrong. Like, right. You're like, I feel resentful right now, and I know when I look at it, it's gonna my perception is gonna be different. You know. Right. So. Yeah. It, it's just it was just like this earth shattering thing. So 
Um, and even after all the writing I'd done, there was still stuff I couldn't see that someone who'd been through that process was pointing out to me and was like, man, (laughs) you know, so everything, everything around me just looked different. Um, you know, and when I, when I left this place, um, I, I ended up in this, uh, house, there was like, 30-something people in the house, and I lived in the basement where the rent was the cheapest because uh, I didn't have any money um, and just had, like, a garbage bag full of clothes, and, and they found a house that would work with that. <laughs> um, and I can remember uh, just seeing the power of that inventory process that I had had there because I had been in sober living situations before and, and before it was like I'd be in a nicer house with maybe like two roommates or something and I'd be, you know, pissed off that I had to schedule my life around them and, you know, share a room and things like that. And now I'm in a basement of 11 people and I'm like having the time of my life, you know, and things that used to irritate me were like funny to me now. Um, you know, and I was working at, I got a job at a big lots, 20 hours a week, making enough money to get some bread and peanut butter and pay my rent. And I had nothing material, materially per se to like show for, um, recovery or anything like that but there was all this internal stuff happening that I was completely unaware you could feel or experience um as soon as I got out you know I started going and talking at treatment centers and detoxes and hospitals and stuff and finding people in meetings to work with and I was terrified to do that because I felt like I couldn't there was no way I could explain it as clearly as it was explained to me. Hmm. And I, and I couldn't, but it was still enough. You know, I, I would sit down with people and I would talk to them about sobriety where you didn't have to struggle, like where you could do whatever you wanted, basically, and where you were free of that bombardment of insanity. Hmm. And I would watch their eyes get as big as mine did because they never heard that either. They'd gone to treatment over and over and they'd always heard, it's going to be worse. It's going to suck. Yeah. And if you're happy, you're just on a pink cloud. You know, yeah. that's delusional and life's going to suck and be uh, subpar. Won't last. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I realized that I could, I could help, you know, and I, I, I jumped into this recovery community in the, in the hill country in Texas and, um, you know, just did whatever I could do. And within a short period of time, like I was a part of a community I never really had been before, you know, and people relied on me. People would call me to like fill in for stuff or, Mm. you know, help them with something. Um, you know, and it made sense why that was like the the cornerstone of all the work that I had done up to that point. Um, and, and so I loved it. I loved every second of it um, and just spent the majority of my time doing that the two years that I was there. Um, and a short time later, I ended up going back to work at this place that I was at and, and kind of started working in treatment and getting to 
you know, learn about that whole industry. Um, the place where you went to treatment. Right. You went back there. Yeah. And then um, I moved on from that place a while later for a startup and got to, like, create a recovery curriculum um, and, and build a team of people. And that was, like, the coolest thing in the world to me because I kind of got to create the program that I I wish that, I would have received or, or mm. make things as clear as I thought maybe they weren't, um, when I was trying to get well. Um, and it's cool because over the past, you know, like four years or so that I've been doing that, I, I constantly encounter people who were as cynical and skeptical of themselves and everything around them as I was. And they'll say, I've done that. I've tried that. And they'll leave saying, I had no clue. Like mm. I was completely, my perception of it was completely different than what it actually is. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really cool to, to watch people go through that change, you know, and I, over time I got the, you know, material stuff like, you know, nicer. That's what car. it's all about. Yeah. That's, that's what the, it's all about. Is that what? Isn't, isn't that what they promise you? Yeah, that's what they promise. The 2013 <laughs> RAV4. And, Nothing uh, newer? No, but it's a, it's at least pretty new. <laughs> it was almost new. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got a you know, great relationship with a girlfriend I've been with for a long time now. Um, you know, family, pets. Uh, house all the stuff but i mean the coolest things i can think about are just moments like where you're just with sitting there with someone else in recovery trying to verbalize what it's like to be recovered and you can't even verbalize it and yeah. and you know what both of you are trying to say but you're <laughs> just like speechless because it's so cool yeah yeah, verbalizing it is almost like, well, it's like you have to show the process. Like It's like that's how you were effective whenever you couldn't verbalize it. You were just showing them the process. Right, right? yeah. And then if I do the work and I do the process, then I have my experience, and that's that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess uh, you got anything else to share? You want to uh, say, uh, you know, you want to shout out our sponsors? We don't have sponsors. <laughs> Boca Bikes. Oh. <laughs> no. That's fine. Uh, yeah, dude. No, awesome, man. I think what you're doing uh, is uh, is good work. Um, I, felt, I feel like I'm lucky. For some reason, I feel like I fell in a group or a circle or a place where, you know, the stuff you're talking about and the stuff you're talking about relating. Um was made very clear to me mm -hmm. and thank god for that i've noticed that about yeah. new orleans yeah i didn't uh expect that when i moved here because it's definitely not like that everywhere but wow it's very strong here well well i'm happy to be a part of that and happy you're a part of it too brother happy to be a part of it too all right well, thanks for coming mm-hmm
Don't I? 